Welcome to 100 Centuries, Episode 5. I'm Connie B. Dowell. And I'm Stephen B. Dowell. And today we are talking about um, the Edwardian Conquest of Wales. And we are also going to have our first historical fiction spotlight. Something that I hope to do a lot more in, of in the future. Um you know, hopefully spotlighting some some new and new in a very relative term in terms of historical fiction, um, like something in the last five years that's come out. Um, let's talk about the history behind it and to talk about the good books that we read. So Indeed. Indeed. So, I do want to go ahead and preface, in case you hear a casual rattle or something, it's probably one of the two cats yeah. um, being very naughty as they're bound to be. All right, they decide to start playing a game of tag right in the middle of this. So. And if we shut the door, they're even noisier. So, so this just, is the best option. Just a warning to you all. <laughs> all right. So today the book that we're, we're highlighting is called The Wicked and the Just by J. Anderson Coates. Um, it is a young adult historical fiction about um, two teenage girls living in... Um, living in Caer Narfan in the 13th century. One is English and one is Welsh. But we're going to start with the history um, leading up to the point where the book takes off. Um, so you've got a little bit of background. And also, in case you were just really not into um, fiction, you still get a little bit out of this podcast. <laughs> get the history. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about the Edwardian. Is that how you say it? Yeah, yes. Edwardian conquest of Wales. Wales. It's Edwardian because Edward the first is did the one it. who did it. <laughs> the one who did it. Ooh, and yes, sorry. and Stephen doesn't like <laughs> Edward the first very much, nor do I really. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk. Um, now, no, offense especially to the Celtic peoples, English listeners out there, but. Um, I'm Welsh and <laughs> oh, yeah. by ethnicity, and so I'm, I'm not a huge fan of him. Uh, yeah, because he probably beat up dash killed some of my ancestors at some point. So, so he was he was not very fun if you were a Celt in any form. Yeah, if you're if you're um, Celtic, Gaelic, you name it. Yeah, you lived in Ireland, Wales, or Scotland. He, he was, was not, not your, your friend. friend. <laughs> so, uh. so, um, so one. One note before I start um, on pronunciation, um, I, I studied a little bit of Welsh literature in college and got a little bit of pronunciation um, education from that. The, the author of the book we're spotlighting today, Jay Anderson Coates, has a pronunciation guide on her website, which I will link to in the show notes, um, which will help you a lot with trying to pronounce the words in the book and trying to get a handle on a lot of kind of some general Welsh words. So I am basing my pronunciations today off of that and off of what I learned. Uh, of course, pronunciations vary in Welsh as it does in any language. So this is my best shot. <laughs> I hope I don't get it terribly wrong. Um, so a little bit of background on Wales and what led up to this conquest. Well, um, if you don't know much about Welsh or British history, um, the Celtic peoples were the peoples of the the areas now known as 
England, Wales, and Scotland before the Anglo-Saxons arrived. Um, So uh, kind of traditional Celtic lands were northern France, uh, mm -hmm. Brittany, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and the associated isles around it. So Isle of Man, Angsley, Cornwall, that sort of stuff. Um, When you hear, if you ever know anything about the uh, Roman history, um, Roman Britain was actually really... Um, run by the Celts, actually, when they were conquered by um, uh, the Emperor Claudius. It was Claudius um, when he came through and, and turned Ro- uh, turned uh, Britain into a Roman province? The people there were all Celts, um, and they remained so for the entire Roman period. It's only after Rome had left um, and Roman influence waned in the hundred years after that is when the Anglo-Saxons invaded, and they came over from Germany, Denmark, that region. Yep, so they came over from these sort of little country areas and began settling land and kind of driving remaining Celts to the the portions of the island that we now think of um, as Celtic, to Wales, up to Scotland, and either by pushing them away or by killing a lot of them, intermarrying, and that land became um, Anglo-Saxon until the Norman Conquest, which changed the um, ethnic landscape again. Once again. But, um, so so the Celtic peoples were forced into these um, western and northern edges of the island. Although I shouldn't say edges. These are actually pretty significant chunks of land. Um... And the Welsh in in the West. Now, it's easy to think of the Celtic peoples as all homogenous, but they were actually very, very um, distinct and different. And we unfortunately don't know a ton about a lot of those cultures before, um, you know, before the the conquest as much as as we would like to. Um, Particularly cultures like, particularly... um, the cultures that that became Scotland, um, right. they're really mysterious. But we do know a bit about um, some linguistic differences. That it wasn't a single mass language for the Celtic peoples, um, and you can divide Celtic languages into um, two large branches: Gaelic languages, which are associated with um, Scotland, with Ireland, and Brythonic languages, and that's you know, that's Welsh, that's, um, that's Manx, that's, uh, Breton, which comes from Brittany in France. Um, so those are the two big divisions of languages and, and frequently where you have divisions in languages, there's divisions in, you know, ethnicity and culture as well. So the, the Welsh peoples, um, they were they were a tribal society, um, and they they sort of divided themselves into what we can loosely call kingdoms or principalities, and not not a single unified country. So they were pushed to these edges, and after the Norman conquest, the Normans invaded the so-called marches, these sort of borderlands um, between Wales and England, and settled there. So that was another um, thing that they had to deal with. But at the same time as these, you know, marcher lords were gaining power, 
the Welsh princes became more powerful as well and more organized and kind of became someone on par to, to dealing with um, these martyr lords. Yet they were still forced to acknowledge the king of England as their overlord. So they were sort of, they were separate, but, but not quite. Kind of a um, vassal state. Yeah, kind of a vassal state. The same situation happened um, for a long time in Scotland. Yep. They were separate, but not quite. Not quite. Um, and Ireland as well, but certain mm-hmm. portions of its history. Um, so to bring us a little bit closer to when our story starts, um, in 1233, Cluelin ab Yorweth, or also called Cluelin Far. That's Cluelin the Great. Now, you might be wondering what on earth I am saying when I say Cluelin, because this involves a, a um, consonant that is not present in English. Um, it is spelled with a double L. So it's L-L-Y-W-E-L-Y-N. Cluelin. And that double L, um, here's how I had a teacher explain it to me. Is It's like if you pronounced a T and an L at the same time. Which sounds weird, but like once you once you hear it and you practice it a lot, you start to get. This is this is the Welsh consonant I felt pretty proud of, though I'm probably making a bad job of it. Cluelin, um, but anyway, Cluelin Far um, was the ruler of Gwynedd, and he was recognized as overlord of the Welsh um, by other princes. So they they still had to recognize the English king as their overlord, but he has, he was like the vice principal, you know, they, they, they wanted to have allegiance to him directly rather than the king directly. Um, and then the story gets more interesting with um, Llewellyn's grandson, Llewellyn ap Griffith. Um, when Edward I ascends to the throne, he starts making some demands of Llewellyn, this is the grandson, before acknowledging him as Prince of Wales. Um, he wants Llewellyn to do him homage and to, to basically do a little bit more to show that he's submissive. Now, he did have a little bit of a reason to worry because before Edward I became king, Llewellyn was... was collaborating and working with people who were rebelling against Edward's father, Henry III. Well, Cluelin delays on this submissive um, you know, homage. And this conflict escalates to eventually to battles. Edward sides with Cluelin's enemies, the people that don't really like him being the, the Prince of Wales, um, including his brother, um, yeah, including his brother David. So subdued, Llewellyn eventually surrenders. He he doesn't win. It's a long fight, but he he doesn't win it, and he he does eventually surrender. Um, but after that time, other Welsh princes and powerful people become a bit dissatisfied with how the English are treating them, and they you're know, really spearheaded by David, the the brother that that betrayed his own brother, rebel against um, Edward. And during the course of this, Cluelin joins the fight. But this time, it, it goes even less well than 
it did the first time. And Llewellyn dies in a minor minor skirmish um, before an important battle. There's even a time where people don't know where he was and find his body later um, in 1292. And then later, the next year in 1293, David is captured and he's he's drawn and quartered. It's just not a very pretty process. Um, and eventually both both brothers' heads are on display at the Tower of London. Well, so at this point, it's over. Wales is conquered. Um, so from there, Edward goes on a castle-building spree. Now, he's already built a number of castles in the process of, you know, sort of having this war of submission and then eventually a war of conquest. Um in the second time round when he decided, well, I'm just taking this whole thing over. Um, he built a number of castles while fighting the Welsh. And now that he has won, he's built even more castles to fortify these new lands. And he establishes um, English boroughs, English towns around the new castles. And he wants to fill this with English people um, to, to anglicize the country, to to bring these groups together and if not to completely anglicize the country, to make them feel homogenous, like one country instead of a country that's being ruled by others. Um, So he needs lots of English people to come and he offers them a number of privileges. Um, Burgesses in these boroughs are required to only pay. They've got a certain um, amount that they pay per year to be a burgess. Um, but they don't have to. They don't have to provide troops um, in the same way that uh, other landholding lords would do. They don't. They're exempt from taxes and from harsh trading restrictions that the Welsh ha- were not exempt from. Um, and so, for instance, they could trade during non-market days. As a result of of all these privileges and these ethnic tensions. Many English officials really, really abusing these privileges. And because they had imported English people to be in positions of authority, when an English person broke the law, when an English person did something that was wrong, well, what were the Welsh going to say about it? You know, the, the law was really skewed toward at least the law, if not the letter of the law, the the practice of the law was really skewed towards favoring these um, English imports, basically. Right. They kind of had de facto... Yeah, they had de facto rule over everything, even though the letter of the law differed. That really wasn't what, what was supposed to be happening, but right. it was happening. So this brings us to the point where the book takes off. Um, our historical fiction book, The Wicked and the Just. Um, the year is 1293, and the Welsh living near the boroughs are overtaxed, underpaid. They have to jump through many hoops just to do ordinary shopping um, and ordinary everyday things. As um, the book demonstrates, there's more injustices and abuse, and they're really a people at the breaking point. I'm, I've read this book, Stephen. You have not read this I book? I have not read this book. <laughs> um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about... Just enough to kind of give you a taste. Um, I'm not going to tell no spoilers. This is why we're leaving the history right here at 1293, even though there are many interesting things that happen. 
if you don't know those already, you will find the book maybe a little bit more surprising. To start with, I'm going to comment on the title, The Wicked and the Just, which sounds like I, I'm I'm sorry, I don't like the title at all. It sounds like doesn't it, what does it sound like to you, Stephen? Yeah, it sounds like something from a soap opera. Yeah, it, it like sounds bold like and the beautiful Lord. It does. Something it, like that. It, to me it screamed like this is gonna be a romance, it's gonna be a cheesy romance. The wicked. The wicked. Just. You know, whenever <laughs> wicked isn't a title, it's right. kind of a clue. But it's nothing like that at all. I don't know I don't know if the author chose the title, if the publisher chose the title, but it really it, it, it's you know if you can get past the title and actually read what the book is about it's um pretty interesting and you know not to say that the romance is bad but it's not a romance even though the title makes it sound like one and it is the just part of the title is kind of a theme of the book justice is a major theme throughout the book um you know who is deserving of justice how justice is enacted um, vigilante justice is another thing that comes up. Basically, the structure is, is two narrators um, in alternating points of view. So the first girl that you meet, Cecily, whose father is becoming a Burgess in Carnarvon. And the second girl you meet is Gwenwevar, whose family is barely scraping by on what she and her brother can earn. Her mother is an invalid and her father is dead, killed by the English because he was raising um, a rebellion. And there, there's a lot of minor acts of rebellion and things like vandalism happening during the story. Now, it took me a while to get into this book um, because it took a while to get used to Cecily because she is just so spoiled and <laughs> at the beginning of the story. Um, and really the thing that carries her through that early part is a knowing that this is going to be, you know, that this is a story. This is, she's going to change and B she's funny and she's not, she, even when she's unhappy, she's not a whiny kind of unhappy. Someone who, she's someone who gets things done even when she doesn't like doing them. Now, Gwimpivar is a very different character. She's really distant at first. Um, which made her kind of intriguing. If you, as you read more about her, you get the sense of her relationship with her family, and it, it becomes easier to identify with her. Um, now, if you want a book that's got an ending that ties neatly up into a bow, this is not the book for you. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of quite glad about that because. When you read what happens, there's there's no way it could tie into a nice little neat bow with all the ends tucked in. And, but there is a sense of closure at the end. It's, like I said, it's no me by no means a perfect book. There are some things I was not pleased about. Um, her, the Cecily's dad, I don't think I like him <laughs> very much. But I don't think I was meant to like him. Um, so... <laughs> You, and you might not have the same reading tastes as me, but I found it really compelling um, and a fascinating look at a different part of medieval life. Um, even though this this um, you know the, the the cover of the book has the cast the castle looms large in the town. This is a story of of towns. It's a story of town life. Um, it's so uh, a lot of stereotypical um, 
you know, thoughts that might come into your head when you're reading a book or picking up a book set in the medieval period is something that's very rural or something that's sort of high society in castles and grand houses. And this was a very middle, middle-ish of the road, um, kind of upper middle class per life in a medieval town, um, which was an interesting and different perspective. Yeah. One other note um, on the book before we go ahead, and it, that is the spelling of the, the name of the town and, and the castle. Carnarvon in the book is spelled C-A-E-R-N-A-R-V-O-N. That is the old spelling and the anglicized spelling of this town. And the, the town currently um, is spelled with an F instead of a V. So it would be C-A-E-R-N-A-R-F-O-N. Um, that's the Welsh spelling. A, a single F has a V sound. So when you are searching or looking for information about Carnarvon, you're going to want to search really with both names. You might even drop the, the E in C-A-R. And sometimes that comes up as well. So um, this actually became an issue. There, there's an interesting article that I can link to um, um, that the, uh, the author wrote about choosing this name and choosing the, the older anglicized name be, because of this sort of English domination going on in the story and why she made that choice. And it actually affected choosing the cover of the book. Um, that the original cover didn't have a picture of the castle on it because when they were researching for the cover, they um, they used the old name, the name in the book, and had trouble finding modern pictures. Fortunately, you know, the author was was able to look at the cover and to correct this mistake so that they could get modern pictures and get that that classic castle on the cover of the book. So spelling matters in in historical fiction and in researching history. And just in general. <laughs> just in general. Spelling counts, guys. Spelling is important. So that's what I've got for you today. Unless there's anything else you can think to add or any questions, Stephen? Not really. It sounds really straightforward. Um, yeah, kind of a, you know, would have to read the book myself, I guess, to see the sort of ideas or... or kind of spoilers that you you left out yes <laughs> there there are lots of spoilers all you need to know is that there are two girls in close proximity but very different lives and tensions are rising and you'll just have to see where those tensions go so that is it for today if you have any questions or comments we would love to hear from you you can get in touch at 100centuries.com that's Spelled out 100, not the numbers. Not the numbers. If you are a historical fiction author, um, we would also love to hear from you. And, you know, tell us about your book and see if that would be something we would be interested in featuring. Um, you don't have to be a best-selling author. You just have to have something interesting to say. Yeah. And as always, um, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review if that's how you like to listen to your podcasts. Till next time. Till next time.